0: comes to us this evening in the form of Psalm 69. You would open your Bibles with me to Psalm 69. Let us give our attention now to the reading of God's holy, Uh, Inspired and inerrant word. To the choir master, according to lilies of David. Save us, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My ears, my eyes grow dim with waiting for God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. That dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good according to your abundant mercy. Turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me ransom me because of my enemies you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor my foes are all known to you reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair I looked for pity but there was none and for comforters but I found none they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink let their own table before them become a snare and when they are at peace let it become a trap Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. Thus far the word of God. Let us pray. O oh, Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would bless your word, illuminate our minds and our hearts, that we might receive it by faith and be changed by it. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Remember the old game shows? The ones that used to be on during the daytime, and you would go up there as a contestant and you would receive... Uh, applause from the audience, and you would have an opportunity to win all sorts of cash. Perhaps it's $66,000, or it's $100,000, or a brand new car. However, if you weren't as skilled as you might be in order to win the game, you would receive a consolation prize. You remember those cheesy consolation prizes? Perhaps it was a years worth of Wheaties or perhaps a years worth of supply of car polish or something of the sort. A consolation prize. It was the prize that you got even though you didn't win to uh, kind of console you. You didn't get the main thing. You didn't get the main prize. Here's a consolation prize to make you feel better about your loss. My thesis of tonight is that too many Christians regard God Too many Christians regard Christ himself as a consolation prize. Let me explain to you what I mean. As we enter into the psalm, we want to consider the context and keep in mind this idea of consolation prize for uh, the duration of our explanation of our text. And um, as we do so, remembering the context in which this passage is found, we, we remember that uh, this Psalm here is about being delivered from uh, one's affliction, being delivered unto particularly something glorious, namely praising God. Now we know that like the Exodus event, The Exodus event was about God delivering his people for the purpose of coming into his presence to worship him. In fact, no less than eight times through Exodus chapters 5 and through 10, the Lord tells Pharaoh, let my people go, and oftentimes we stop there, but God goes on. He says, let my people go that they may serve me, that they might come into my presence and offer up to me worship and praise. In other words, redemption was unto worship, it was unto being taken to God. The purpose of redemption, the purpose of salvation was so that God's people would not just be delivered from their current oppression, but that they would be delivered unto God himself, be brought into his presence, and there glorify him in worship and in praise. You see, in verses 1 through 8, David realizes he needs to be delivered. Verses 1 through 8 speak about David as one who is stuck in the muck and the mire of this world. Now, we notice that within this portion, verses 1 through 8, that there are two things which are weighing down David. Number one, the accusations of false charges against him. He is being accused, as we see here in the opening verses of Psalm 69, he is being accused... By lies, people making false accusations against him. And we know from the story of David that this happened, and oftentimes the accusations came from within even his own household, from fellow Israelites and those within his home. But we also see that David is stuck in the muck and the mire of even his own sin. You see here, particularly in verse 5, he talks about his own folly and he talks about his wrongdoings. He acknowledges, he knows that he has sinned and fallen short to the glory of God. David knows that not only is he being falsely accused of certain sins that he didn't do, but he also knows that he is guilty of certain sins that he did do. Between false accusation and his own sin, he feels the way to this current present evil age. But notice here what's interesting, because really at the heart and the center of the entire complaint in Psalm 69 is the idea of false accusations being leveled against him. But notice in verse 7 the reason for the false accusations. Verse 7 explains to us that he takes the reproach of others for the sake of God. Verse 7, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. You remember the song, if you remember the 60s, if you remember the 70s particularly, you got mud on your face, a big disgrace, etc., 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 etc. You see, David here is experiencing the situation of having mud on his face. In other words, he has lost face. He is being disgraced. He is bearing these reproaches for the sake of God. And we know, we don't need to go far to see that commitment to God oftentimes means commitment to being disgraced before the world. Commitment to God oftentimes means receiving reproach people falsely accusing you people bringing accusations against you calling you a hypocrite and all other sorts of things and so it is david here has received these things now The word here, reproach, particularly in verse 7, has the idea of being taunted or shamed. Oftentimes we say, well, above reproach, we think, uh, well, that that carries the notion of of being above uh, being guilty or something of that nature. Here the Hebrew word is herpa, and uh, it means and can be translated simply as taunted or shamed. In other words, uh, one who taunts you, who makes fun of you who tries to disgrace you. The other word here in verse 7, the word dishonor, is the Hebrew word kelamah. And the word kelamah means simply to be insulted. You see, he is being shamed, he is being taunted, he is being insulted. He is being made fun of, particularly for his commitment to God. Now in verses 9 through 15, he makes a request in light of this. Verses 9 through 15, we might say, is, a, is a, uh, a prayer asking for a transition to take place. The prayer is, as it were, a prayer that he might be moved from a state of humility to a, or humiliation to a state of exaltation. You see, David here is made low for the sake of God's house, His zeal for the house of God. You remember David here had the zeal to begin building the house of God. He wanted a place that the ark can go and you'll remember that he wanted to build the temple but God said, no, 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 no. You won't build the temple. Your son will build the temple. And yet he still has a zeal for the things of God. And for the zeal he is being mocked and persecuted. But this low estate that has come because of his faithfulness to God is not in a state that he wishes to remain in. Do we blame him? It's not pleasant, is it, to be mocked? It's not pleasant to be persecuted. Certainly appropriate for us to desire to be delivered from such things. And so it is that David here does not wish to remain in this situation and he asks to be delivered. We might even say, David here is seeking ultimate victory. He's not content here with a temporary victory. David is seeking to be delivered from his enemies, to be sure, once and for all. Verse 14 talks about again the mire, the muck in the mire. Deliver me from sinking into the mire of the persecutions of my enemies. Let me be delivered from them. David does not want to be defeated by his enemies forever. And so it is here that David once again projects himself, he projects us into the future. He projects us to that time of God's great deliverance. He's not asking here that God would just providentially uh, order the things of this life to fall out such that he will be lucky in life, that he will somehow have worldly and earthly health, wealth, and prosperity, that he would just somehow have his fortunes turned about. But he is looking for an ultimate, we might even use the word eschatological, victory. A final victory, a victory victory which can never be overturned, a permanent and eternal victory. He projects himself, he projects us into God's future, into God's coming, when God will deliver him and his people once and for all from the enemy. Now we know the life of David. This did not come to David in his life. These verses anticipate the coming of God to bring victory. To the people of God. And so, verses 16 through 28, appropriately enough, we see the prayer continue. It's advanced, is it not? Verses 16 through 17, twice he pleads with God, answer me. What does he want God to answer him with? Well, he wants God to answer him with mercy, with love, and with haste look at verse 16 answer me according to what answer me according to your steadfast love David here appeals to the love of God he appeals to the mercy of God what is more according to your abundant mercy turn to me You see, David realizes that if salvation is going to come to him and to his people, it is going to have to flow out of the mercy and the love of God. Salvation is not something that God is obligated to do. Salvation is something that God wants to do. It flows, does it not, from the abundance of his mercy. It flows from the abundance of the love which he has for his people, that he has known from before the foundations of the earth. God loves you. God loves his people. And for that, and because of that, he brings salvation. And again, David here, is he not? He's looking forward to that final victory. In verses 19 to 21, he goes back on to talk about his reproach. If we we want to say anything about Psalm 69, we would say that Psalm 69 is a psalm of reproach reproach is a main theme within this psalm being stuck in the muck and the mire of this life stuck in the muck and the mire of his enemies as they bring reproach upon David's name David is crying out to God deliver me from this reproach deliver me from this dishonor verse 19 Deliver me, verse 21, from the poisonous food which they feed me. David here is describing a plot of treachery, a plot where those within his own household seek to do him in with poisonous food, and not only poisonous food, but sour wine as well. David in the midst of his hunger, David in the midst of his thirst, as he cries out to God, in thirsting, in hunger, he receives from his enemies poisonous food. He receives from his enemies wine that is sour like vinegar. Can you imagine suffering? Can you imagine thirsting to death and seeking sustenance? your mouth parched as if you were wandering through a desert. And somebody offers you a drink and you get your hopes up thinking of your thirst being quenched and you drink and you partake only to find out that what you are drinking and partaking of is vinegar. What a cruel way of treating a person. But verses 22 to 28 describe the type of deliverance that David desires from God. And we'll notice here in verses 22 to 28, uh, what I have called before the boomerang effect. What David here is asking God to do is to perform the boomerang effect upon his enemies, that the very tools, the very things, the very table that holds the poison, that holds the vinegar would be turned on his enemies. That his enemies might be the recipients of their own treachery that they would fall into their own pits and once again what david here is desiring is eternal deliverance an eternal judgment by god by which he is separated out from among the unrighteous and the wicked a final eschatological victory now that word eschatological I've used that several times already and it's a big word I understand it's one that may not exactly roll off our tongues as we speak on a daily basis with people but um, eschatological simply means that which pertains to the last things ultimate realities if I could put it that way it comes from the Greek word eschaton which means last and eschatology the study of the last things And so when I speak about this eschatological victory, what I am saying is that David is desiring a final, ultimate victory of God. It may be that we experience good things, little victories in this life. Maybe that David experienced in his life as a pilgrim here on earth some good things, some victory over some things. But what David desires in this song Is not a temporary victory, just get me through my day, O Lord. But what he is looking forward to is the final victory when he is once and for all delivered from his enemies and brought into the presence of God forever. And that is proven by our last section, verses 29 to 36. Here he is asking for the reversal of fortunes. He is asking that his pain would be turned into being uplifted. Look at verse 29. In my affliction, and in my pain, let your salvation, O God, set me on high. Set me on high, just for a time. Set me on high. Give me a, uh, give me a rush for a few moments, uh, for a couple of days, for a few years. No. What David here is desiring is an eternal and everlasting inheritance. Verses 35 and 36. For God will save Zion, build up the cities of Judah. The people shall dwell there and possess it. Verse 36. The offspring shall inherit it. Those who love his name shall dwell in it. David, if I could put it this way, desires to dwell in the house of the Lord Forever. And nothing less than eternal, everlasting, eschatological presence with God will do for David. Nothing less. He seeks the face of God. Look at verse 32: When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. David is speaking about here seekers of God those who would want to see God those who would want to behold the glory of God those who would want to be in his presence forever those who would want to dwell in the house of the Lord with the Lord for all of eternity the eschatological victory towards which the psalmist looks we know is found and it is fulfilled by exclusively jesus christ how do we know that this psalm is fulfilled in jesus christ is that something i'm making up am i being anti-semitic as i open up the old testament and insert christ into it as the modern scholars would tell me i'm doing as we open up the psalms and we there behold the fulfillment of these psalms in and through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, are we performing eisegesis, imaginative interpretation by finding Christ in the pages of these psalms? Not at all. Not unless you want to say that John the Apostle John, himself under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was falsely interpreting the psalms. Look with me at John chapter 2, verse 17. There in the Gospel of John, very early on, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. You'll remember it. He comes into town. He sees the corruption. He sees those exchanging money and selling goods with corruption within the temple of God. And he cleanses it. He chases those uh, those corrupted dealers away. And in verse 17, we see his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal, your house will consume me an exact citation of Psalm 69 verse 9 initially upon the lips of David the king concerning the old temple here upon the lips of the disciples describing Jesus Christ as he cleanses the new temple furthermore in Romans chapter 15 verse 3 The Apostle Paul reads the Psalms in the same Christ-centered way. Look at uh, Romans chapter 15. And here, we'll begin in verse 1. But verse 3 is our optimum verse. Verse 1, Paul says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Verse 3, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Do you see what the Apostle Paul is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? That this Psalm, uh, exact citation of Psalm 69 verse 9 once again, that ultimately it has its fulfillment in Christ, who did not seek to please himself, but to do the will of the Father by taking upon himself the reproaches of the anger and the hatred of the people of Israel that they had towards their God, Jesus bore those reproaches. Do you realize that? That the reason why Jesus was crucified was because the people who crucified him hated not only him, but they hated their God as well. Nothing more politically incorrect to say than that. And yet, it is true. Christ alone, you see, is reproached for the sake of our righteousness. He is reproached for God's sake in perfect righteousness. Now, what's interesting is the way in which we are reproached and how this contrasts with how Christ was reproached. We're reproached and we want to go on a self-pity trip. We're reproached. Why? Lord, look at what I'm doing down here for you. (laughs) Look at what I'm going through for your sake. Look how I am being made fun of and mocked and persecuted. And we can even take things like that, such terrible things like being persecuted. We could start placing those as little badges upon our coats and walking around with them thinking somehow, some way that we have gone down done God a favor but we know that Christ when he was reproached was reproached and received those reproaches in a perfectly holy and righteous way Christ only bore those reproaches only Christ has borne the reproaches of the enemies of God even as he took upon his lips the sour wine which was offered to him upon the cross as there he is offered poisonous drink as he suffers and as he dies as his enemies seek to put the salt as it were within the wounds as he thirsts upon the cross all too human our Savior is is he not all too human he feels every bit of the pain he feels every bit of the reproach he feels the thirst in his throat and in his mouth and they fill that thirst they fill that thirsty throat with sour vinegar those reproaches were born upon him for us those reproaches were born by him as an act of not only hatred on the part of the people who did it to him, but he suffered it for our sake, taking our place, taking what we deserve to be reproached not by men, but to ultimately be reproached and judged by God. That reproachment, that judgment, Christ took in our place. It's only in Christ, then, that we can see God. It's only in Christ that we can receive an eternal inheritance forever. It is only in Christ that that eschatological victory towards which David looked is given to you, his people. Only in Christ can we come into the presence of God in that eternal inheritance to dwell in his house forever and ever and to behold him as it were face to face. Only because Christ has received the reproaches, Christ has received the judgment, now we are taken to God. You see, just as Israel was delivered in the Exodus from Egypt to go and see and be with God and to worship Him, so now in Christ, the new and the better Moses, we have been delivered from our sin, that we might be brought to God forever and to see Him face to face. God's plan all along has been this. To deliver His people that they might see Him and behold His glory in the face of Jesus Christ forever and ever. In other words, Jesus is not our consolation prize. Jesus is the reason from the very beginning. From the very beginning, even into eternity past itself, Jesus was the plan. He was the goal. He was that for which God did everything that we might behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We often think, well, if I get sick, and in getting sick I eventually end up dying, well, at least I have Jesus. At least when I die, I'll go to heaven and be with God forever. And that that consoles us, and it ought to console us. But we take that almost as the consolation prize, don't we? Our mentality within our hearts is, boy, I really, really am counting upon the doctors here. But if the doctors don't come through for me, well, at least I have Jesus. We can often think of Jesus as the consolation prize when we find our dreams unfulfilled. Our dreams, to have that dream home, to have that dream car, to have those dream children that go to college and make us proud. And when we find out, oh boy, my kids have let me down. They haven't become great successes like I wish I had been. Well, at least I have my faith. At least I have Jesus. If I don't get that promotion at work, if I don't get that degree from college, my candidate doesn't get elected into office this year well at least I still have my faith but Jesus is not the consolation prize Jesus is not that second prize that comes if all of our earthly dreams aren't fulfilled but Jesus is the prize itself Jesus beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is that for which we live and move and have our being. If we lose sight of that, it really makes everything else trite and insignificant. Everything else in our lives can only be enjoyed. It only can be appreciated as that which stands in the shadow of the main thing which is the radiance, the brilliance, and the glory of God shining upon us in and through the face of Jesus Christ. If we lose Him, we lose it all we lose him we have nothing else if he is regarded as the consolation prize then that which we regard as the main prize becomes to us an idol and it will undo us but if Christ is the center if Christ is the prize if we realize that it is Him for whom we have been created, it is Him for whom we have been redeemed, it is Him for whom we have been saved so that we might glorify in Him and worship Him forever, then everything else means nothing. Jesus is the prize. He is the goal. He is our all in all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would orient us, reorient us, recalibrate us perhaps, so that our hearts and our minds, our attention is focused squarely upon Jesus Christ, that we might truly look forward to that day when we will behold you face to face even as we behold you now by faith, yet through a mirror dimly, how we cannot wait to see you without that mirror, but to behold your glory as we worship Jesus forever. Oh, Father, help us now to that end, we ask. For Jesus' sake, amen.